Well, I want to encourage you now to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts as we continue our study in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. We have been going through this book since the beginning of the year, and we come to a miraculous conversion of a man who was aiming at crushing the church. And his name is Saul, who many of you know will later be known as Paul, the Apostle Paul. But prior to his conversion, his name was Saul. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 19, the text reads as such. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against his, the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard much. I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study of the word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word is eternal. It is a light into our path. And we pray that you would illumine our minds and open the eyes of our heart that we might see once again great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. When we think of people who have achieved great things, such as Olympians or musicians, authors, sometimes politicians, It may be tempting for us to think that they have had a life of opportunity, a life of privilege, or at least a life of successive successes that have afforded them the success that they now possess. Swindoll profiles the life of, quote, America's 16th and probably greatest president, Abraham Lincoln. Most would assume that the office of the President of the United States would be a fitting climax to perhaps a prestigious life. Anyone who would become President probably had some sort of advantage or silver spoon background, eventually standing in the limelight of the country. Lincoln, however, was born in 1809 in a primitive log cabin in what was then known as Hardin County, Kentucky. His father was an illiterate, a wandering laborer. His mother, a frail and sickly woman, they were forced out of their home when he was only seven. And his poor mother died when he was nine. He had virtually no formal schooling. His first attempted career in business in 1831 failed miserably. A year later, he ran for the state legislature unsuccessfully. The same year, he lost his job and applied to law school, but was laughed out of consideration because of his miserable qualifications. Not long after that humiliating ordeal, he started another business using money he borrowed from a close friend. Before that year even closed, however, that business failed and He claimed bankruptcy, and he spent the next 17 years paying off that debt. In 1835, he fell deeply in love with Anne Rutledge, only to have his heart broken when she soon died after their engagement. The following year, he had a complete nervous breakdown and spent nearly six months in bed recovering. In 1838, he sought to become Speaker of the State Legislature and He was defeated. Two years later, in 1840, he sought to become the elector of the state. Again, he was defeated. Three years later, he ran for Congress, and he lost. In 1846, he ran again for Congress and won. Only two years later, he ran for re-election and was defeated. In 1849, he sought the job of land officer in his home state, was rejected. In 1854, he ran for the Senate of the U.S. again. He lost. In 1856, he sought the vice presidential nomination at his 
party's national convention. He got less than 100 votes, another embarrassing defeat. Two years later, he ran for the U.S. Senate, lost again. Up to that point in time, I'm sure many of us would have counted him out. Some would call him a perpetual loser, but finally, in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected to the presidency of the United States, and afterwards he endured the most devastating war our country has ever experienced, but his perseverance rewarded him with unprecedented political success. He was elected for a second term. But only five days after Lee surrendered on the 14th of April, 1865, he was assassinated before reaching 60 years of age. It was not out of a life of privilege, nor a series of successes, but of difficulties, of setbacks, of suffering. Yet he emerged as somebody that God would use to establish as the President of the United States and great fame followed after the Civil War. God uses world rulers and uses even those that we might count out. God can use those whom the world would consider failures. There was also a man by the name of Mel Trotter who was a barber by profession and a drunkard by perversion. And so debauched was he that when his young daughter died, he stole her shoes from the coffin and pawned them in order to buy more drinks for himself. One night he staggered into the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago, in which he was marvelously saved. Burdened for the men on Skid Row, he opened a rescue mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he went on to found more than 60 missions and became supervisor of a chain of them stretching all the way from Boston on the east to San Francisco on the west. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of God and especially the man whom we will meet today. And that man's name is Saul. We first met Saul back in chapter 7 verse 39 or 59 when the young men were stoning Stephen one of the first individuals who was chosen to leadership by the apostles in the feeding of the widows. We first met Saul back in Acts chapter 7 as the young men who were stoning Stephen laid their robes at his feet. And then his name, Saul's name, appears again in chapter 8 verse 1. Saul, it says, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Saul was an aggressive, violent Pharisee, this Saul of Tarsus. What do we know about him? John Pollock, author of the book, The Apostle, A Life of Paul, he describes Saul's early life and education. He writes that Paul's parents were Pharisees, members of the party most fervent in Jewish nationalism and strict in obedience to the law of Moses. And they sought as Pharisees to guard their offspring against contamination. And so friendships with Gentile children, anyone who was not a Jew, was discouraged. Greek ideas were despised 
And though Paul from infancy could speak Greek, the lingua franca of the day, he had a working knowledge of Latin, his family at home would speak Aramaic, the language of Judea, a derivative of Hebrew. They looked to Jerusalem just as Islam would look to Mecca. Their privileges as freemen of Tarsus and as a Roman citizen was nothing to the high honor of being Israelites. Being Israelites was supreme compared to their Roman citizenship. Israelites, the people of promise, whom the living God had revealed His glory, had revealed His plans. And then, at the age of 13, Pollock continues and he writes that a strict Pharisee would not embroil his son in pagan moral philosophy. So probably in the year of Augustus, when he died at A.D. 14, the adolescent Paul would, be, would have been sent by sea to Palestine and on to Jerusalem. And during the next five or six years, as Paul himself would testify, that he was a student under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel. Hillel was a supreme teacher who in a few years before had died at the age of more than 100 but under the fragile but gentle Gamaliel, a contrast with the leaders of the school from Shammai, Paul would learn to dissect the text of Scripture. He would learn the text of Scripture, the possible meanings. He would learn them back and forth, and he would learn to debate, not only as a scholar, but also as a lawyer in a type of dialogue, question and answer style, would be, which would be known as a diatribe. Part preacher, part lawyer, he prosecuted and defended those who broke the law of God. And Paul stood out among his contemporaries. He outstripped them in his rhetoric, and his mind was so very sharp as we hypothetically thought perhaps he may have been one who had gone up to debate Stephen as he was of one of the synagogues of the free men. But yet Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and powerful in the Word of God, showed how the Word of truth, wielded by a yielding individual to the Spirit of God, there would be no one who would be able to defeat the words of God. But Saul here was a highly trained young man. His mother had passed away at the age of nine, and he had a singular desire. His express and misguided zeal for God was going to be the systematic eradication of Christians by imprisonment and death. He was more of a, of a terrorist than an angel to those who were Christians. And you can imagine what it might have been if you looked through the lens on the other side you looked through the lens, through Saul's eyes, through the Pharisees' eyes, because the Jewish leadership had spent three years brooding and fuming as to how they would get rid of Jesus because he was upending their religious system. And finally, after three years, they had him unjustly arrested, they put him through a kangaroo court, and they crucified the Savior. But that didn't stop the spread of Christianity. In fact, after the resurrection, the Lord Jesus came and he spent days with his followers. And 
After the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church exploded, as we have seen already in the early chapters of the book of Acts. 3,000 would come, and then 5,000, and then it would spread on thousands upon thousands, up into roughly 20,000 more, perhaps. It was getting out of hand for the Jewish leadership, and here they were at their wit's end. What would they do with this new movement that was gaining momentum? And Saul... He saw all of this and would then, out of his loyalty to Judaism, as a zealous Pharisee, desired to stamp out, persecute, prosecute, and pursue those who were Christians, not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and Samaria and other parts of the world, they would be now sought out and imprisoned. But even as they brought that persecution to Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen, as we saw, the people would spread, they would run, they would leave Jerusalem, bringing with them the message of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, it was the time, the time When the gospel would spread throughout Asia Minor, and so we pick up the account of Saul here in Acts chapter 9, and we see two major sections in this first 19 verses, the conversion of Saul and the commissioning of Saul. The conversion of Saul, verse 1, chapter 9, now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, verse 2, so that he might found, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Here Saul was on a murderous rampage. With blood boiling, he sought those who would be of the way, the way. The way refers to Christ, who himself referred to that he was the way, the truth, and the life, those who would be Christians. And Saul, in effect, became a bounty hunter. He was the Gestapo of the Sanhedrin with the authority to capture or kill Christians with the aim of destroying the church. He testifies that himself in Acts chapter 22, and we'll also look at Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 22... Beginning in verse 4, Paul is testifying in verse 4. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And also the high priest of all the council of the elders can testify. For them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. In his testimony to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, he articulated the fierceness of his resolve, 26, 9 through 11. The apostle Paul testifies before King Agrippa, and he says this in verse 9, 26, So then I thought to myself, that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus Christ, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, 
but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And, I, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. You ever have non-Christians furiously enraged at you? Paul was a man who was possessed by anger. And he sought to cause those who were believers to blaspheme God. And he pursued them even to foreign cities. In Galatians 1, 13 and 14, Paul writes, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He had a zeal but without the truth of the knowledge of God. That zeal was to destroy the church of God, to persecute the church of God beyond measure. That was his mandate. But what happened? Verse 3, back in Acts chapter 9. As he was traveling, it happened as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. He was traveling to Damascus in order to persecute Christians, a city that was large with a population of Jews, when a blinding light from heaven came and flashed about him and the voice of Jesus said, Saul, Saul. The repetition of a name is often used in a, in a rebuke such as Martha, Martha in Luke chapter 10, or when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Or so too, when Jesus spoke to Peter and he said, Simon, Simon in Luke 22. Here it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The persecution of God's people is felt by our sympathetic high priest who calls upon the Father on our behalf. And Saul's response is telling as he responds in this way, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Saul knew it was a Savior. He knew it was God. It was no doubt that Saul knew the message of the gospel he didn't know the name. The message of the gospel had been promoted and proclaimed by the apostles here, and he very well knew what they were saying. He was there when Stephen proclaimed seeing Christ in heaven, standing at the right hand of God in Acts chapter 7, 56, when Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And God revealed himself to Saul and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city. It will be told to you what you must do. It was the Lord Jesus. 
He knew that it was God who was speaking to him. But he didn't know it was Jesus until Christ revealed it to him. This was not some sort of hallucination as Renan, a French atheist, would say. He would say that it was due to the fatigue, the nerves, the stress, the hot sun and stroke that called this hallucination. Some say, well, what he saw or what he heard was really a thunderstorm or perhaps the most common excuse that people give is that Paul had some sort of epileptic seizure. But the Bible tells us that it was Jesus, a vision of Jesus who appeared to him on this road to Damascus. He reveals himself to Paul just like every other sinner who comes to salvation. It is God who reaches down and reveals himself to the spiritually blind. The men who were traveling about him, verse 7, they were speechless. They heard the voice but saw no one. Saw God up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. They led him by the hand. They brought him to Damascus. The men who were with him didn't see anyone. They were dumbfounded as to what would happen. Acts 22 verse 10 tells us furthermore that Paul asked the question, What shall I do, Lord? The question, you see, is not whether or not Jesus is Lord. The question or not is whether or not we're fully submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence of Paul's submission is his obedience to Christ. He didn't ask Jesus why. He didn't look to debate with God. He didn't run off and scream such that he was now blind. He didn't decide to seek medical treatment. He immediately and simply obeyed. Augustine called Paul's conversion, quote, the violent capture of a rebel will. And our wills are all the same, aren't they? Rebellious against God. But God saved Paul in his magnificent grace. God saved a seething, angry, murderous sinner who wanted to wipe out the church. God saved Paul by revealing to him the truth of who he was by opening his blind eyes. And surely, Paul knew the message of the gospel, having heard it, I'm sure, from other Christians their claims of Jesus as the Messiah. But now he knew God's grace overwhelmed him and saved his angry soul. In three days and three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. You can imagine what Paul may have been going through arriving in Damascus for the next three days, going through all that he had learned, all that Gamaliel, who was a supreme teacher, respected rabbi, had taught him, spending all of those days in prayer to God, as we will see next. The truth of who Jesus was transformed the very direction of his life. And God's grace went even further in not just saving his soul, but granting to him a, the blessing of a commission. Commission as a missionary to the Gentiles. And we see that in this next section, verse 10. The commission of Saul. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas 
for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, Ananias, obviously not the husband of Sapphira, this was a different Ananias. Tradition tells us that he was the bishop of the church in Damascus, heard this command, and such a statement would have jarred any, any Christian in that day. If you might imagine to yourself that you were a Jew living in the 1940s, and you had run because of Germany and their desire to eradicate the Jews, and you had hidden your family in some remote cottage in Austria to a home that was there, and suddenly you receive a message that you are to go down to a house to find a man from Bernau, Upper Austria, who is praying. And you were to go to him and you were to pray for him and that he would receive his sight. And that man's name was Adolf Hitler. And he's had a vision of you coming. Would you go? Or perhaps... It would be like you as a Christian were to travel, were called to travel to a place such as North Korea, to a small home where a man who in their country is number one on the list of the persecution of Christians in the world, and his name would be Kim Jong-un, who would be praying. Or you, perhaps in the early 2000s were to go to Pakistan to travel along the dusty roads in the mountains and to see and bring hope to a man named Osama bin Laden. Ananias's feelings about Saul were laid out before the Lord. He didn't know at that point that Saul had been saved. But such scenarios... Ananias being called and having heard that this man named Saul defies our sensibilities because every objection would come into our mind. This man named Saul, this man named Saul who had imprisoned or killed some of my friends, who had taken everything away, who had come into the church to ransack it, to destroy it, and I am to go to him and help him regain his sight. Maybe it might be better if he's just blind forever. He respectfully asks of God, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. One of the paraphrases reads this way, Ananias protested, Master, you can't be serious. Everyone's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing, his reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem, and now he's shown up here with papers from the chief priests that give him license to do the same to us. But the master said, don't argue, go. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Notice that it's God who chooses 
whom to use and whom not to use. And Paul, or Saul, was God's choice, not only to salvation, but also to bring the message of salvation to the Gentiles, to the rulers, to the Jews. It reminds us of the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 14 or 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you, and I have set you apart. God uses whom he wishes. God chose a man named Saul to bear witness to the Gentiles. A Gentile was anyone who was not a Jew. And here God chose Saul. What would he show him? Would he show him, look, Saul, look at how fruitful your ministry will be. Look at the fact that you're going to write nearly half of the New Testament that generations of believers will use from then on out. Look, Saul, how many people will hear and heed and be guided by the words that I'm going to help you to write and say? No, none of those. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How much he must suffer for my name's sake. How's that for encouragement? You know, I remember many years ago, before I decided to go to seminary back in the early 90s, I went and made an appointment at a church up the street, a large church, and I wanted to talk to the pastor because I wanted to get some feedback about my life's direction and all of that. And I remember a friend asked that pastor what he was going to say to me. I still remember what he said he would do. He said that he would do everything that he could to dissuade me from going into the ministry. And then he would do everything he could to encourage me to continue on. There's a certain reality to that, certain reality to that, that we as Christians face as Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, what a blessing, been granted to you for Christ's sake to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake, experience the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. It has been granted to you, been granted to you for Christ's sake to receive the gift of salvation and also to suffer for the sake of Christ. Part of the work of ministry is that of sacrifice and suffering. Not just when it's convenient, when you have easy hours, but oh no, what a blessing it is to be able to serve God in all of the things you can do. If all of the things you can do with the spare time that you have or to make time to serve God, what a privilege, what a blessing, what an honor to do so. One of the people who serves here at this church has a company, they were sharing with me, has a company that encourages community service. So they have a number of paid hours paid hours which they are given to spend on volunteering, volunteering. So this member spends their hours serving the Lord here. And what a blessing that is. 
they were telling me what people do. Their boss, their boss spends their volunteer hours going down to the local animal shelter and hugging cats. What's more eternally worthwhile? Saul was about to be told his commission from the Lord that he would be singled out as the one who would bear witness to the Gentiles and in so doing, he would suffer greatly. Great accomplishments for the Lord often come at great sacrifices and he would suffer as he recounts in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 28, saying, are they servants of Christ? I speak as of insane. I more so in far more labors in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's almost 195 times. Or Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Would you apply for a job with that description? Shipwrecked X number of times. You will be beaten about five times. You will go some days without food, some days without pay. Don't worry, your neighbors will chase after you. If not, they'll send their dog after you. You will be imprisoned. You will lose most of what you have, if not everything. You will have sleepless nights. You will have hardship for the rest of your life. That is what Paul was going to be shown by God. And what a blessing it would be to serve the living God. Some wouldn't even serve if it meant an evening away a a month. But to those who value the gospel and value Christ and love the Lord, it is all worth it. But those who have very little value for the gospel, for Christ, for the church, could care less. You will invest your life in the things that you truly treasure. The things that you truly treasure are the things you will invest your life and your time, your energy, your money in those things. Do you want to know what or who is supreme in your own heart? Then look at what you invest your life and your resources in. Ananias had his answer, and so he went, and he departed. And he laid his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 22, verse 14, adds this 
when Paul says, and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. John Stott, in his book, The Spirit, the Church, and the World, summarizes this scene when he says, So Ananias went to Straight Street, which is still Damascus's main east-west thoroughfare, and to the house of Judas, indeed, to the very room where Saul was. Then he placed his hands on him, perhaps to identify with him as he prayed for the healing of his blindness and for the fullness of the Spirit to empower him for his ministry. Even more, I suspect that this laying on of hands was a gesture of love to a blind man who could not see the smile on Ananias' face, but could feel the pressure of his hands. At the same time, Ananias addressed him as Brother Saul, or Saul, my brother. I will never fail to be moved by these words. They may well have been the first words which Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion, and they were words of fraternal welcome, unquote. Calling the very man who may have murdered and imprisoned many of your friends, who was a violent aggressor, a vitriolic hatred had filled his heart, calling him brother and ministering to him in love. Some people would have never trusted a killer. Back in the late 1980s, I remember following the news, there was a very well-known serial killer here in the Pacific Northwest, and his name was Ted Bundy. He was a serial killer, he was a kidnapper, he was a rapist, assaulted and murdered numerous young women and girls during the 1970s, possibly earlier. He confessed to some 30 homicides, if not more, between 74 and 78. He had abducted women from the UW. He abducted a couple right here on Lake Sammamish State Park. Their bodies would be found just east of the park, a couple miles in here in Issaquah. But before his execution, he called upon a man named Dr. James Dobson, who was the founder of Focus on the Family. Because sometime around that time, he had turned his heart to Christ and he made a profession of faith in him. There was a video entitled Fatal Addiction that you can find on YouTube about his dark plunge into pornography that led him to become a serial killer. And many of you probably know that serial killers all have a history with pornography. It is hard, I think, for some people to believe, though, that a man such as Ted Bundy, one of the most notorious serial killers, especially in our area, could ever truly be saved. But the Lord only knows. I think he was. But his heart, as hard as it was, was not beyond the saving grace of God. 
That is the man that Dobson reached out to, to minister to, just as Ananias did to Saul, the notorious Christian killer of his day. He regained his sight, Paul did, perhaps a physical reminder of the spiritual reality that had taken place. He was baptized, he took food and ate. So what do we learn from this passage? Perhaps some practical thoughts for you to take away. First of all, when we are persecuted for the sake of our faith, take heart because Christ empathizes with us. When we are persecuted for our faith, take heart because Christ empathizes with us. On the Damascus Road, Jesus appeared to Saul and said, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Secondly, God can reach the hardest of hearts. So keep praying and sharing. Maybe there are unsaved people in your life. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe your spouse. Maybe your children. Maybe your coworkers. Maybe it's somebody that you know whose heart is so hard. Perhaps they've even pledged their own faith to some other religion in the world, or they are an atheist. Let me encourage you, never give up praying for them and reaching out to them with the gospel because God can save the hardest of hearts. Thirdly, God uses whomever He so chooses for His glory. God can use whomever He so chooses for His glory. Some people think, maybe even you, that you have such a terrible background or that you don't have such and such education, that maybe you don't speak well, perhaps, maybe you're not as gifted and you compare yourselves to others and you think, God cannot use me. Some people define themselves by their sin. They label themselves and their identity becomes what their sin was. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. I'm an ex-con or whatever it may be. And they see themselves in that light versus I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. I'm an ambassador according to the book of Corinthians. I'm a herald of the good news. I am saved by grace. Not to forget where we've been, but to live in who we are. That God uses whomever He so chooses for His glory. And often God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. Fourthly, maybe you're like Saul. Maybe you are like Saul. No, not some seething murderer out to destroy the church, but you are like Saul. You've never submitted yourself and given yourself to the Lord Jesus. You know the gospel just as Saul did, but you aren't saved. You've never embraced the Lord, believing that maybe the things that you do will save you or how good you are may save you. But the truth of the matter is, if you've never repented of your sin and bowed the knee to Christ asking and begging of Him to save you today, then maybe it is today that God wants to save you, your road to Damascus, that you would receive salvation and the scales might fall off of your spiritual heart that you might see. Or fifthly, remember that we were all like Saul once, 
Remember that we were all like Saul once. As the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Let's bow in prayer. O Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your amazing grace which shone out of heaven and saved a wretched man like Paul. We pray, O God, that you would help us always to remember the greatness of your grace, the wretchedness of our sin, and live, O Father, in the light of eternity that we, O Father, desire to submit ourselves fully to you that we might be used for great things, that you, O Father, would bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.